own being the owner and the steward of the world's reserve asset allows the U.S. to export its foreign policy goals and agenda. Uh, and what I'm getting at here are economic sanctions. Hello, and welcome to the Hopkins podcast on foreign affairs. I'm your host, Zach Stone, and today I'm joined by Ben El-Haddad. As some countries, including China, India, the UAE, and Turkey, have started to move away from the U.S. dollar as the standard for international trade, the government is faced with many questions regarding the importance of dollar dominance. In this episode, Saleya Mosin joins us to overview the historical influence of the U.S. dollar as a pillar of international trade, as well as how the U.S. government might take action in response to countries' movement away from the dollar. Saleya Mosin has reported on economic policy from Ohio, London, and Oslo to Washington, D.C. Her work covering the U.S. Treasury Department for Bloomberg News encompassed Trump's trade war, economic sanctions, parts of the Federal Reserve in Capitol Hill, and the government's response to the worst public health crisis in nearly a century. She also covered the transition into Janet Yellen's tenure as Treasury Secretary including the U.S. shift towards Buy America and French shoring, and the response to Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Her book, Paper Soldiers, How the Weaponization of the Dollar Changed the World Order, is due out in March. So, Leia, thank you for joining us today. Hi, so glad to be here. The U.S. dollar has played a long-standing role as the dominant currency worldwide. It is the most commonly used currency for international trade, taking up well over half of the world's foreign exchange reserves. How has the U.S. dollar reached this level of dominance? And are there some specific characteristics of the American economy that have allowed the U.S. dollar to play such an outsized role in the global economy? So the way that the U.S. dollar became the central currency for the entire world is actually something that was planned out in 1944, Uh, more than 100 finance ministers, central bankers, and economic officials from 44 countries gathered in Bretton Woods, New Hampshire, uh, right around the time that it looked like World War II was about to end. And they wanted to find a way to build really deep economic ties across the world as a way to uh, sow the seeds of peace. Because if countries have deep economic ties, they're trading with each other, they are uh, exchange of goods, that also increases exchange of ideas and culture, then you're less likely to, quite frankly, invade another country like that, that you have such close ties to. So what happened at Bretton Woods, uh, two things happened. One, um, the International Monetary Fund and the World Bank were created as a way to sort of symbolize and uh, more than just symbolic, actually tie the uh, world economies together. The second was that the dollar was officially crowned as the world's reserve asset. Um, That happened because they kind of took the position that the British pound had uh, for decades at that point. by 1880, the U.S. had grown larger in terms of um, economic growth and economic size than the United Kingdom. Uh, and what happened was that during World War II and World War I, the U.K. had a huge uh, fiscal deficit. And so it couldn't really serve as the central uh, currency unit for the world. The U.S. just had a better fiscal outlook at the time. 
Um, so that's how the dollar became the world's reserve asset. But um, you know, your, to your question, there are several other reasons why uh, the U.S. Uh, economy can nurture a dollar and a, a world reserve asset. Um, the key components there are that uh, the U.S. has rule of law, meaning that our judicial system, our Supreme Court, and all of our other courts are um, uh, are independent and above political meddling. And I know that a lot of people would think that you know, in this day and age, 2023, uh, considering the political climate and some of the news that we've seen over the last few years, that maybe it's not as independent as we thought or isn't as independent as it um, used to be. But by comparison, it has uh, our judicial system has stood the test of time uh, as an independent uh, unit away from politics. The other um, aspect is that other parts of government are independent. Um, the Federal Reserve is also above political meddling. It took decades for that to be really sowed very deeply, but no president or politician can privately or publicly direct the Federal Reserve to goose the economy ahead of an election. And that all kind of encompasses uh, the fact that the U.S. is a bastion for democracy. We have free and fair elections. And all of these things put together create several pillars that make the dollar uh, immune to p politics and other forces that don't let it trade free and openly in markets. And as you kind of went into briefly earlier, talking about the motivations at uh, the Bretton Woods conference about uh, why you would want to kind of even have a world reserve currency and how that would create peace, because if countries are tied in economically to each other, uh, less likely to invade. And so looking at maybe from both a global and a U.S. perspective, how does U.S. dollar dominance impact U.S. hegemony in other sectors outside of the foreign exchange market, such as maybe diplomacy? Yeah, that's such a smart question. Um, basically, it allows having a own being the owner and the steward of the world's reserve asset allows the U.S. to export its foreign policy goals and agenda. Uh, and what I'm getting at here are economic sanctions. Now, when the U.S. Uh, decides that a country or a leader or an a, a country related entity is behaving in a way that does not align with U.S. interests or global or national security, then the U.S. has the ability to impose economic sanctions that reflect their its foreign policy. Uh, the example that I can give is the most recent one in February of 2022, when Russian President Vladimir Putin uh, invaded Ukraine. Uh, the U.S., uh, joined by a lot of other countries, more than half the world's GDP, imposed really harsh economic sanctions. Uh, the thinking was that uh, Russian entities and oligarchs and those close to Putin and Putin himself and government officials there were... Um, were damaging the global alliances that had stood for 70, 80 years since Bretton Woods. And that was not good for the world economy. It wasn't good for the security uh, and, and the p mission of peace. And so the U.S. said, OK, well, then we're throwing you out of the global financial system that is underpinned by the dollar, meaning you, President Vladimir Putin, cannot do any business that touches the dollar. And that's the kind of power that the dollar gives to American leaders. 
and the American government. Moving this conversation on the dollar to uh, more uh, recent developments, um, until September of 2022, the U.S. dollar appreciated compared to most other currencies as the Federal Reserve hiked federal funds rate, the federal funds rate, the target interest rate for overnight lending among American banks. And this was done in an effort to curb inflation. Can you give us insight into the mechanisms that caused the dollar to appreciate following this rate interest increase? Sure. Um, So the way it works is that uh, the Fed's interest rates are reflected in the country's savings rate. So if the Fed, let's say, has a 2% interest rate, that means that is how much it costs to loan money. And if it gets really high, if it's 10%, then it's too expensive to get a loan. I'm going to park my cash at a bank and instead get the 10% interest on the money that I have uh, parked at the bank, right? So when interest rates go up, the rate of savings, uh, the benefit for not using your cash and putting it into the economy increases. And what that does is that it attracts foreign investment. So foreign money and everyone's money starts pouring into the dollar. That means that there's more demand for dollar Therefore, demand boosts the value of the currency. And are there any positive and negative impacts of this specifically to Americans and American interests? Yeah, you know, the way I look at it is that for a lo- most for the most part, manufacturing for many, many years has been the backbone of the U.S. economy um, that has gone down a little bit over the last, you know, since uh, 2001. Uh, when various trade agreements were struck and manufacturing kind of went down a little bit um, as a share of our economy, but it's still very, very important. And so if I just look from that angle, um, a strong currency is really good for American businesses that buy goods from foreign companies. So if, if, let's say, China or Japan is selling us their goods we are able to buy more of them because our exchange rate is higher and more powerful. We have more purchasing power. And that's good for importing countries or companies, American companies that import because they can get more goods for cheaper. Um, the negative to is to domestic manufacturers. If let's say here in America, um, I think in Wyoming maybe, um, or let's take Kentucky where um, there's a lot of bourbon that is made. Now all of a sudden to sell that, those bourbon bottles overseas, foreigners have to pay a lot more because they're sold and priced in dollars and their currency is all of a sudden only able to buy fewer dollars because the dollar's strength is so high. So it becomes a little bit of a, you know, a negative thing for domestic uh, manufacturers. And is currency appreciation as a policy objective sustainable? Is that something the U.S. can continue to do? So currency appreciation is actually neither a monetary or a fiscal policy goal per se. Um, The Fed targets a dual mandate, which is to have stable inflation, which are prices, and uh, maximum employment. Um, There has been, you know, for many years, the view that the U.S. does prefer a strong dollar, and that is because 
uh, if you have a strong economy, then your currency is going to be strong. Um, that has its pros and cons. Again, uh, one way to look at it is uh, the way that it affects manufacturing, as I just explained. Um, but generally, um, you know, the U.S. government does not control its currency. It stopped interventions decades ago. It only happens now on extremely rare occasions. Um, and so it's really just left up to the markets to decide what the value of the currency is. And that is the healthiest uh, model for the world economy. And so since the end of September, the U.S. dollar has kind of taken a bit of a dive off of its peak of strength. And the U.S. economy has slowed and the Federal Reserve has tempered its rate increases. What impact does the depreciation of the dollar have on the U.S. economy? Or is it kind of an inverse impact as you just went into a little bit? Yeah. So if we set aside just the manufacturing example, I can point to just tourism. Americans can now travel to Europe and other parts of the country um, and be able to spend more and maybe stay at some nicer hotels because the dollar is able to, to buy so much, uh, has just has so much better uh, purchasing power. And you kind of covered this a little bit earlier, talking about how, you know, a strong dollar isn't a policy objective, but that it does, you know, benefit uh, some sectors of the American economy and benefits the American people, uh, especially when spending money abroad. Are there any things that um, parts of the U.S. government uh, can do um, to try and keep the dollar strong? Because like you said, the um, although it's not technically a policy objective, it is something that is preferred. Yeah, so monetary policy doesn't uh, address or target the dollar per se. Um, but what the US, uh, you know, Treasury Department and their officials over there target is a strong economy. So that's fiscal policy that they can look at. Um, the best way to support the economy, the best way to deal with whatever value the dollar is at is to focus on job creation, which is something that we can see coming out of the out of Congress and the executive branch. Um, you know, like, for example, there is the CHIPS Act or the Inflation Reduction Act. Uh, there are job creating policies and initiatives in those acts uh, that, you know, um, sow the seeds of more manufacturing, uh, factories being opened up across the country, attracting more uh, blue collar workers and providing more jobs generally. Um, the other thing that the US, uh, sort of the federal government can do, the executive branch and uh, Congress, is focus on, uh, focus on housing. You know, just make sure that there's affordable housing, uh, there's enough housing, demands are met, and uh, those costs are kept uh, realistic and sort of achievable for American, the American people. Now, earlier you were talking about the power of the American dollar in foreign policy, sanctions against countries that act against the interest of the global and um, American economy. And I wanted to sort of find out a little bit more about that. So with that said, other countries such as India and China have already begun to move away from the U.S. dollar as the standard for international trade. For example, India and the UAE recently agreed to conduct trade deals using rupees instead of the dollar. How do you see this impacting the value of the dollar in the short and long run? Yeah, you know, it's, this is a great uh, um, question. It's so uh, uh, sort of newsy right now. Everyone's talking about this. Um, you know, 
you talk about India and the UAE, the example that actually comes to my mind is India and Russia. Um, you know, a lot of countries, uh, Brazil, Russia, Indo India, China, which are known as the BRICS, along with Argentina, the UAE and Saudi Arabia are all talking about de-dollarization, thinking, you know, how can we ditch the dollar if we don't want to have to deal with American foreign policy influences on uh, the global financial system. But um, what we're seeing is that while there is a renewed push um, that is gaining more momentum than ever before to move away from the dollar. It's actually not as easy as people uh, think it is. Um, and so I come back to India and Russia. They're kind of realizing it's not straightforward. Russia is um, wanting, you know, the, the rhetoric from Russia and India is let's uh, switch away from the dollar and trade in our own currencies in rubles and in rupees. But in practice, they have to still use dollars because the Kremlin in Russia when they're buying, selling their oil to India, India is paying in rupees, but there aren't as many ways to spend those rupees because everyone, uh, all the systems in the world for buying commodities or trading goods or uh, services are all set up to be settled in dollars. It's as if I were to go uh, here in Washington, D.C., where I'm based right now, to McDonald's and buy a Big Mac, but I'm trying to pay for it in rupees. They're not going to accept it. They're not able to, they're not set up to, ex uh, to accept foreign currencies. So because of that, Russia doesn't want to have too many rupees on its hands because then it can't spend that money. Um, so that's one example of how, even though there is this big push to move away from the dollar, the dollar is so deeply entrenched in our uh, trade system uh, and financial system that they, people, countries aren't able to move away from it as quickly as they thought. Kind of going off what you just talked about with the challenges um, associated with moving away from the dollar, do you think that as we look at kind of BRICS and the more that those countries deepen economic ties, and like you said, with the few countries that have done or attempted de-dollarization so far, they've run into a bunch of issues with not being able to use those different currencies as they had hoped. Do you think if BRICS is able to kind of expand de-dollarization and push it as um, an agenda on a more widespread basis, is it feasible down the road for them to compete with the dollar as the uh, global reserve currency or are there just too many barriers? You know, I think that um, the shift away from the dollar it's, if it happens, it's going to happen slowly. Um, I think it will take investors and markets and countries, even the ones who want to move away from the dollar, slowly um, have trust that investing in a system that is outside of the dollar is worth it and earn each other's trust that that alliance will remain strong, um, even as leadership in those you know, the BRICS countries and other others in that expanding block uh, remain stable. Um, you know, the changing of the guard or handing power uh, off to, from one president to another, one leader to another remains smooth and stable. Um, it will take a, all of those different mechanisms uh, to fall in, into place. And it's a slow process because uh, so much trust is required and practice and trials and tribulations. Um, so it is going to be slow if it happens. Um, but it's definitely possible, you know, so far, um, you know, there was a White House official who in August uh, was asked 
you know, just recently in August was asked if there uh, anyone in the White House is concerned about the new uh, expanding alliance of the BRIC nations because they want to invite um, they've invited the UAE and Saudi Arabia and Iran into that group and Argentina. Uh, but the White House is saying that countries can make alliances where they see fit and that they don't see it as a threat. And how are relations between the U.S. and countries that decide to move away from the dollar affected? You know, that's going to depend on um, who is in the White House, uh, what administration we have. The current administration uh, sees that, like I said, those countries uh, creating an alliance to move away from the dollar. Uh, They aren't admitting, at least, or acknowledging that there is a threat there. Um, You know, if we're just speaking sort of intellectually or academically, there's nothing wrong with a shift away from the dollar because it would take half a century or more for the dollar to no longer be uh, the preeminent currency um, because of how deeply uh, rooted that concept and that reality is. Um, So it's not a problem that's urgent. And a lot of things can come at play um, the way democracies and autocracies unfold and, and, and evolve could come into play here. Um, but if there is an administration, let's say there's a president or congressional pressure to be a little bit more aggressive in terms of foreign policy, then there could be uh, more strain uh, between the U.S. and any other country or block of countries that is uh, angling or sort of aligning against the dollar. Okay. And let's suppose that a country just decides to move away from the dollar. What does that process sort of look like? Do they necessarily have to join a larger alliance like BRICS, etc.? Yeah, um, I can't really see a scenario where they could do it on their own. Um, They would need an alliance so that many countries kind of come together and form a block saying, hey, the four or five of us, we're going to trade between us, not using the dollar, but using our own currency. So you'd need that agreement. Um, You know, we'd have to see a lot more, let's, for example, commodities that are, you know, where the contracts or the, you know, exchange is settled uh, officially in currencies that are not dollars. And we're seeing that there are there has been trade between um, I want to say it's uh, UAE uh, and maybe Saudi Arabia. Um, You'll have to check me on that. But there's been trade between countries where oil has been sold and the contract has been settled in uh, a country, a, a, a currency that's not the dollar. Um, and so that is beginning. I, I read somewhere that a producer of pulp, you know, that what paper is made of, they have also started offering the option of, OK, you can either um, pay for your goods in dollars or you can pay for your goods in another currency that they've specified. Um, so that's the kind of thing we would have to see where companies and markets, um, you know, sectors themselves would have to start welcoming uh, the opportunity to settle trades um, in other currencies, which would increase what's called the convertibility, which goes back to what I was saying before about Russia buying or selling oil to India in rupees, where you need to be able to sell this other currency that's not the dollar. Uh, you need to be able to use it in more ways and at more you know cash registers than currently. Do you think that the expansion of online banking and you know different foreign digital payment systems such as Alipay that have been making their way to the U.S. does that signal anything for the future of possible de-dollarization or like you were just talking about 
companies offering to accept different currencies for goods and services? Yeah, you know, I think the that is such a small drop in the ocean when it comes to digital currencies, um, and they're not quite as trusted as uh, central bank-backed currencies right now, um, that I don't have a full answer on that. I, I would need to see more um, examples of it succeeding before you could really see someone buying a home, let's say, in Europe using you know a digital currency. Salaya, thank you again for joining us on the podcast today. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it so much. I'd love for you to send it once it's out. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of the Hopkins podcast on foreign affairs. We hope you enjoyed it. We would like to say thank you to the International Studies Program at Johns Hopkins University and the SNF Agora Institute at Johns Hopkins University for making this episode possible. Remember to follow us on social media at Hopkins POFA on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook for the latest and greatest of Hopkins POFA content. Hit follow on Spotify, subscribe on iTunes, and leave a rating. We'll see you next time.